This program contains grown-up themes and language that the FCC doesn't like. Use your common sense. You're listening to Beautiful Red, a novel by M. Darusha Wayne. Find out more at darusha.ca slash beautifulred. Jack started walking back to her apartment, planning her next move. If she could trace the path of the unknown login back from the Bella system, she might be able to find out where it originated. If she could find out where it came from, she might be able to figure out what they were doing. She was pretty confident that whoever it was, and wherever it came from, the Bella system was not the final destination. There were no flags raised by the security system, and, as far as anyone could tell, no damage done aside from the downtime the other day. Jack also wanted to play with her new toys, and she came up with an idea that she hoped would be a cross between a gritty crime vidcast and an urban documentary. She walked a few blocks away from her building, to a darker area, more heavily populated by streeters. She saw no uniformed security goons, and for once didn't look at the situation as a potential training exercise. Instead, she felt compelled to watch the streeters themselves. She looked at them, as if for the first time, as if she were a tourist, and they were novel and interesting scenery. She was accustomed to seeing them only as a potential threat, or source of some grey market bargain. More often than not, Jack, like everyone else, didn't even notice them. This particular street had many unauthorized dwellings. Everything from packing boxes, hollow tents, and piles of blankets were being used to mark out where one person's territory ended and someone else's began. By the circulation of goods, and the permanence of some of the encampments, Jack saw that many of the streeters had clearly been living this way for some time, but there were some who had the look of someone who was fairly new to street life. There were a few indicators. Some were wearing tattered uniforms as opposed to well-patched generic items, and they seemed to have a wild and afraid look rather than the resigned attitude of someone who's seen pretty much all of what the street has to offer. Jack approached an alley that was well known to be a popular scrounging ground for streeters. There was a mid-range upgrade store in the building, whose staff often discarded unfashionable items that the streeters could use or sell. Also, the alley was fairly well sheltered, and it appeared that many of the new people were staying close to it. Jack stood at the mouth of the alley, looked around, and saw that there were not too many people nearby, and those who were there were preoccupied with their own concerns. She fished in one of her pockets and grabbed a couple of the micro-recorders. She quickly rolled them one at a time down the alley, then abruptly turned and headed back to her building. Partly, she just wanted to see how well the recorders worked, but partly she was genuinely interested in seeing the streeters' lives. The popular boards had been full of prurient tales of streeter crime and degradation, and Jack suspected it was mostly propaganda to keep people from helping them. Still, she thought it would make for interesting watching. All her life she had done some of her best thinking while watching video, so she hoped that this might be a good diversion as she worked out the path of the mystery visitors to the Byside and Bella systems. Back in her apartment, she brought up the recorder's software and activated the units she'd left in the alley. At first she was thrown by their fly-eyes multiple view of the scene, but she quickly learned how to isolate individual views or start a three-dimensional view. In the 3D view, it was uncanny how lifelike the scene felt. 
It was exactly as if she were standing near the northern wall, about a third of the way in. She could turn around and look up or down like normal, and see everything as if she were there. She could hear audio in three dimensions also. An airbus screeching overhead prompted her to look up, and the subtle change in sound felt entirely realistic. The only thing that was missing was smell and touch. And, of course, she was rooted to the spot. It was eerie and fascinating. She paged out of the three-dimensional mode and set up a series of individual views to run in the background while she worked. She set them to her left eye, her usual choice for secondary input. She put on the coffee and heated a meal packet and called up all the information she had about the intrusion. She pulled up the list of addresses used, the incoming address from Byside and the outgoing address at Bellas, as well as the tools she'd found on the scene at Byside's client delivery system. She started to look at the tools by reading the code directly, not expecting to learn anything explicitly, more just to get a feel for her quarry. She found you could often tell a bit about a person or group by the code they wrote. As she was scanning the lines of text and symbols, her attention was drawn to one of the images from the micro-recorders. It looked like a scheduled dump of cast-offs from the upgrade station was about to occur, since a small group of streeters had gathered in the alley and seemed to be waiting. The group seemed to be mostly veterans, a few faces Jack recognized from the neighborhood. She suspected that, like in most ad hoc communities, the old-timers got the pick of the goods and the newbies had to salvage what they could from the sloppy seconds. Jack noticed a few obvious newbies, one who stuck out particularly. He had the same age appearance as Jack, and looked like he was wearing a corporate uniform, though it had certainly seen better days. His appearance wasn't what made him stand out from the crowd, though. It was more his behavior. The other streeters were all vying for a position around the hatch at the back of the store, while simultaneously trying to maintain control over whatever goods or other belongings they had with them. This streeter had no items with him at all, which was unusual, and he stood some distance from the others. He didn't participate in the light conversation or arguments the others were engaged in. In fact, he almost looked as if he were involved in some terribly interesting activity online. He had the vacant stare, the slack jaw, and the lack of apparent interest in the goings-on of the alley. Jack thought it was odd how a behavior that is appropriate in most circumstances for someone with a job and money was entirely strange, and even a bit disturbing in another context. There was no point in playing with the micro-recorders if she didn't fully test them, so she switched the view to three dimensions. She felt a strange lack of equilibrium as it appeared to her that the alley materialized around her. She could see and hear the action as if she were right there, and she found she had a strong desire to hide, which of course simply reinforced the other bizarre feeling of being unable to move. The reality of the sounds and moving images combined with the artifact of being rooted to one spot was, Jack discovered, quite unnerving. Things got even more strange when the hatch in the back of the building opened and the action began. Various items of hardware, diodes, implants, disc, transistors, wireless nodes, whatever, came dropping out of the hatch into the large gray bin in the alley. The majority of the streeters mobbed the bin, but in a very orderly fashion. As Jack had noticed earlier, the more experienced streeters somehow managed to find themselves at the right place to get the prime items, while the others had to sift through the remainders to look for the salvageable objects. Jack looked at the unusual man, not entirely surprised to see that he seemed to not even have noticed that the action had begun. All of a sudden, though, he seemed to come to life, sputtering about the mouth and lurching forward toward the group. 
Jack involuntarily tried to jump back and was momentarily struck by a feeling of terror when she found herself unable to move. She quickly remembered that she was really just watching a clever film, but her physical fear was difficult to control. The man lumbered into the fray of other people around the bin, and completely disregarding what appeared to be the mores of the situation, plunged both arms into the bin. He threw the uninteresting items out of the bin and into the crowd, while literally pulling apart larger items to get at the more valuable parts inside. He stuffed the parts he wanted into his pockets, and scattered the crowds with his flailing arms and flying detritus. When he had finished amassing his collection, he walked straight through the stunned crowd and headed out the alley. He was walking straight toward the micro-recorder that Jack was monitoring, so she had a clear view of his face. He was wearing that same thousand-meter stare he had before, as if he were online. He lumbered toward Jack, who reflexively recoiled as he approached, when it seemed as if he walked through her as he stepped over the micro-recorder. Jack turned to watch him go, as did the other streeters. Jack was still watching his retreating back when the other streeters regained their composure and began sorting through the items he'd left behind. Jack finally disconnected the recorder and found herself sitting at her table in a similar physical state as she had been after her break-and-enter at the byside system. What the hell was that? She couldn't recall ever seeing anything like it. It was as if that man were not paying any attention at all to his actions. Jack admitted that a lack of attention to the physical world was a fairly common occurrence, but not when someone was actually doing something physical. It was easier to pay partial attention to the network while being almost fully engaged in the real world than it was to go the other way. Thinking about what she saw, if she imagined the same behavior in a system, Jack would have identified the man as a bot, clearly not in control of his actions, not having any agency of his own. But he was definitely a human, unless military cybernetics had advanced dramatically and in complete secrecy and they had unleashed their android creations on the street. They could only manage two of the three at best, Jack thought and chuckled. She searched a few boards for any information that might help, and found a discussion on a few similar sightings elsewhere. There were a few still pictures of people who looked similar enough to the man Jack saw in the alley. They weren't always with other streeters, but they always looked completely vacant, and were either stealing or destroying gear. Jack posted a brief description of what she had seen and included an excerpt of the video. Some of the other posters immediately asked questions about the incident, and she discussed the scene with them for some time. There were the usual mix of theories, none of which appealed to Jack. She couldn't help thinking of the scene in terms of a system. He was just a bot. Nothing out of the ordinary there. Except that he was a human, not a program. Jack paged out of the board and went offline. She was disturbed by what she had seen, and she needed to compose herself. She got herself a beer and some toast, and focused on those very corporeal tasks of eating and drinking. After the toast was gone, and the beer was halfway there, she still felt at odds and needed something else to help ground her. She opened up her fridge and pulled out the peas. She lit a frozen cigarette and spent the next ten minutes forcing herself into a more relaxed state, while simultaneously increasing her heart rate and general nervous system activity. She sat, smoking and drinking, and began to review the tools used by the byside intruder. She started to read the code, looking for similarities between the programs. She first compared the part of the map to the document she had obtained from Jill. After searching through the full document, she found the snippet embedded within it. Clearly, the document she was using and the document used by the intruder were identical. 
No great surprise here, since the spec was obviously easily available. After ruling out this piece of code from being a useful clue, she turned to the other two pieces of code. She scanned them, both for comments and similarities in style. She looked for particular designs and peculiar methods. She found very few similarities, and determined that the tools had separate original authors. However, the code represented by the 2x4 had clearly been modified from its original condition. A chunk had been added in the middle, and this part was written in a similar style to the other script. Jack copied the added lines and looked at them along with the other code. She recognized a style which had been popular a few years ago among Pacific Rim Crackers, a particular way of laying out the code designed to make it more readable. She also recognized artifacts of a scripting language that had never attained much popularity outside the Rim. It was a legitimate clue, but to a certain extent, knowing that the intruder had code from the Rim was sort of like knowing that burglars had gloves from a particular mid-sized franchise. It made Jack feel like she was making progress, even though it didn't actually narrow things down at all. Jack decided instead to focus on the address logs. She knew that it was theoretically possible to construct a path from the information in the logs about the intruder. She had learned in her security history courses that before the ability of the EverywhereNet to essentially track all movement on the network, security professionals had been forced to track the paths of stealthy crackers. Jack looked up their tactics and tried to apply them to her current situation. She didn't have a lot to go by, some residual entry information that she acquired at the buy side end, and entry and exit information from the Bellis Eastern system. She ran them through the various algorithms she had found on the nets that had been used in the past, and came up with a startling result. The origin of the intruder was from another network. They came from outside, everywhere net. Until that moment, Jack hadn't known that there even were networks outside EverywhereNet. Why would anyone bother, when everyone and everything was hooked up together? If privacy were the concern, there were plenty of encryption solutions to that problem, and EverywhereNet was built specifically to allow transparency with privacy. The cost and complexity of building your own network would be prohibitive, Jack figured, and even if it weren't, it was simply redundant. Even more shocking was that the intruders entered into the common network from a landline, it appeared that their entry point hacked into the network somewhere in a major city, though Jack couldn't tell which one. The logs showed only that it was a Metropolis Group access point, which was the name given to the EverywhereNet subcommittee of the major uber-urban firms. The tap could have been originated in any of the massive cities, and then it seemed to bounce from corporate intranet to corporate intranet until it finally found its destination. And that destination was also pretty strange. It appeared to be a private citizen. Jack called up a directory and map. She quickly located this person, one Estella Rowan, at an address in a city in Europe, and, on a not very well thought out whim, pinged her. Jack had no idea what she would say if her query was answered, but the point was moot. There was no response. She wasn't particularly surprised. Most people didn't respond to pings from strangers. When personal systems were first becoming popular, spammers switched from messaging addresses to pinging individuals directly. Almost everyone had some kind of blocker to avoid unwanted communications. Jack looked at the information she had on hand and wondered how she had missed it. Estella Rowan lived in Bruges, the same city in the Benelux where there had been a strange theft of hardware recently. Jack was convinced there had to be a connection, though she couldn't see what it might be. She ran a search for an update on the Bruges robbery but came up nothing. 
Then she ran a search on Estella Rowan from Bruges. Bingo. You've been listening to Beautiful Red by M. Darusha Wayne. Find out more at D-A-R-U-S-H-A dot C-A slash Beautiful Red or subscribe for free at patiobooks.com. The theme music is low-level format by Bjorn Fogelberg. Learn more about Bjorn's music at fogelberg.com and you can buy the album Karushi Porn at magnatune.com. If you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. Leave a comment on the website, send email to darusha at darusha.ca, or call the listener line at 206-339-8577. Thanks for listening.